This is the Property Development Book Club podcast. Please be advised that the views expressed are of the individuals and do not represent their employers and should not be taken as advice. Please do your own research and seek advice from an appointed professional. Hi, I'm Hannah Falabi and uh, welcome to Property Development Book Club. We're here filming season two and today we're going to be discussing regeneration a case study in placemaking um i'm here with some amazing guests and so i'll start with adarole and then you can work our way around to introduce each person so hello everyone i'm adarole i am the director managing director of a lake which is a property developer or property development company delivering between one to 20 units so we're very active looking at sites and i've got tons of experience working on large-scale regeneration projects and happy to share my opinion. Hi everyone, my name is Rumi Bose. I'm a Principal Project Officer at the GLA Regeneration Team Um, and together we deliver, help deliver lots of exciting um, public realm um, projects to deliver good growth across London. I also lead on the Property Exchange Programme which is all about thinking about our high streets and what the future will be. Hello, I'm uh, Katrina Stewart. Um, I'm a co-founder of Office SM Architects um, and uh, we work with a 50-50 split, um, working with uh, private clients and uh, public clients. Uh, and we've uh, worked on lots of uh, kind of placemaking projects um, in and around London. Hi everyone, I'm Tom Lewis. I'm a co-founder of TDO Architecture. Um, I'm going to talk today a bit about Lowline Arches projects and um, our role on those. Great, thank you guys for introducing yourself. So we have a really interesting topic to discuss today and it's around how smaller projects can um, have and their place within the larger placemaking regeneration process. And so we're defining smaller projects as um, uh, smaller offices, smaller retail landscape intervention, meanwhile uses, and uh, smaller regeneration projects of one unit or or more. Um, And so my first question to all of you is, um, how can smaller projects play a role in regeneration placemaking? And I'll start with you, Tom. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah, our, our most recent experience with um, with projects that scale, I suppose, is is, is Lolan Arches. Um, so that was a project which Rumi knows well as well. Um, and our, our brief there was to create these spaces that could be used for all different number of functions with um, a solution that would be adaptable, demountable, sustainable, reusable. Um, and the solution that we found was one that enables any number of different uses to occupy it. And given the, the nature of the railway viaduct, which kind of cuts through London and just sort of directly through communities, it has this interface um, at, a, at, a, at a sort of a quite a sort of granular scale that enables that opportunity um, for placemaking at, at, at a kind of a smaller, smaller project scale. So I, I would say that smaller projects um, can achieve that outcome of, of, of placemaking by, by operating at a scale which is quite granular. Mm. And quite one-to-one and a, a human scale. Um, railway arches in particular, because of the way that they are um, sort of distinct spaces, offer that opportunity for um, fairly kind of like particular uses that can that can be an expression of one particular thing. 
And then as you start multiply that by the number of archers that you, you've got, then, then really you start to get quite a kind of um, an array of different um, enterprises and micro businesses, community uses mm. that, that can, can act in a way that um, archers historically have as, as incubator spaces. Yeah. And I, I think, I'm sure we all share the opinion that, that for placemaking to work, it really needs to kind of engage with what's happening at the moment and what the communities that are living there are, are doing and, and, and working there and, and building from that rather than coming in and with a singular kind of vision and, and stamping out what's what's there at the time. So I think rail, our, our experience with Railway Arches is they offer that opportunity by having kind of distinct um, sort of spaces that, in a, in, that already run through communities. Yeah, yeah. And, and Rumi, I guess, in a similar question, but having worked on the low line was your intention to um to kind of say curate the arches and that journey it's um it's been such an amazing privilege to work um on the low line and i'm sure tom tom will agree and the really special thing about the low line was it was never um conceived by um, a developer or a local authority. There was never a master plan. There was never one vision. It was an idea um, that that was coined, the term low line was coined by a local resident, um, David Stevens, who lived in the Bankside area as a retired architect. And it was way back in 2011 or 12, it was part of an ideas competition for the Landscape Institute. Um, and the term low line was coined um, sort of harking back to the idea of the High Line, the linear park that sort of um, runs through um, parts of New York, um, but the Low Line being a sort of ground level um, reimagination of this amazing Victorian viaduct that we have sort of slicing through um, different parts of our city. And as Tom said, kind of connecting hubs of creativity or culture or commerce that already exist but then also reimagining how they could be used in different ways. So the very nature of how it was conceived and how it came about was, was small scale mm -hmm. and intimate and grassroots and community led. Um, there was no money. It was an idea. Um, it won hearts and minds. Um, we just went on lots of walks and talks. Um, a few years later, it became part of a local plan. It was during the um, uh, the big society uh, time when when kind of local plans came came into being. So it was part of a, it was adopted as part of um, one of those documents. A few years later, Better Bankside, the business improvement mm -hmm. district, they kind of incorporated it, and then slowly but surely, it sort of gathered traction. Um, little pieces of the arches started to be developed. So a creative workspace in Elephant Castle, Flatiron Square, which has a mirror music venue and that as a cultural anchor. So very much sort of um, iterative and slow and piecemeal and organic. Um, so yeah, that, that's the beauty of it. There, there was no master plan, there was no vision. Um, ultimately it was adopted into Southwark Council planning policy, which was quite a weighty thing to happen because it meant that any developer who came along and wanted to build something next to it or adjacent uh, near it had to sort of, you know, acknowledge it, not, not turn their back, kind of create good public realm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a movement and a vision um, 
that has won hearts and minds and we hope will continue for the next 20, 30 years. But it's there's no kind of specific funding or specific policy or master plan attached to it. Yeah. So who, who's the guardian then? Um, is it every, is, is it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of a collective. So yeah. it's, uh, as I say, it's adopted in the Southwark Council planning policy. Um, Southwark Council um, have, uh, obviously have a regeneration team. So it was it's kind of sat w within that team in terms of guardians from a local authority point of view. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Archco are the landowners. Um, there's a low line... Um, a low-line kind of group of friends of the low-line mm -hmm. who kind of meet. They, as I say, go for walks and talks. There are, there's a community of different operators, businesses, uh, a, amazing kind of collection of people who sort of, you know, architects or uh, brewer, breweries, uh, skate parks, um, restaurants, um, MOT garages, um, a whole kind of ecosystem of different people that um, are invested in the low line, but we want to keep it going and we want to sort of, um, yeah, that, maybe that's a different conversation, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping it going, okay. And so I guess, uh, Katrina, if you want to talk about it from Shape Newham and Bruce Grove Project. Yeah, so we've been working, yeah, over the last kind of few years on um, a kind of few kind of placemaking projects in and around um, London. And in particular, we've um, worked a lot in, uh, in Newham, mm -hmm. uh, with Newham Council. And really, um, and we've been working on it for now for four years. And it started as a collaboration between um, three three architects, but then also um, other other kind of disciplines as well. So local artists and uh, and uh, graphic designers, and so it's really kind of a multidisciplinary group, I suppose. And initially, it was really about kind of identifying um, places or places spaces in between buildings um, and on high streets that were really unloved, that felt really kind of um, that they needed a lot of kind of attention. Um, and we ran across, in the four years, we've run uh, about 30 events, um, which have, has been really, really amazing actually to kind of engage with um, um, communities all over, all over Newham. Uh, and we're now working on 18 uh, different um, kind of public realm uh, sites in, in and around um, Newham. And, what was really amazing about it, it was that right at the beginning we asked people we did kind of workshops and the kind of assemblies and uh, radio workshops as well and we asked people where, where in Newham did they want these projects to happen and I think that was really really important to actually engage with people right from the beginning to identify these these spaces that they felt um, that the community felt um, were kind of unloved but also the the fact that the, the scale of um, these projects, because they're quite small, it means that there's also like lots of opportunities to kind of work with local artists, for example, um, to obviously engage with a really kind of local community, you know, just from a, you know across the street who live and play and you know um, work within those spaces every every single day, um, and and also making sure that we kind of really kind of invest in that area mm. so you know for the, for the workshops for example right down to you know buying food from the local kind of restaurant or the local supermarket and you know just really making sure that we're kind of bringing 
I suppose social value and uh, and really kind of investing in the in those places. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we're at the stage where we're um, yeah uh, starting to kind of build these um, uh, these projects and yeah it's really kind of exciting, yeah. um, especially especially with the ones also kind of in Harangay and Bruce Grove we're kind of working with local artists and seeing um, these uh, kind of pieces being installed. And also it kind of involving the local community with actually kind of installing murals, for example. And yeah, it's just really amazing um, to see kind of people actually kind of getting involved with the installation mm. and the realisation of these pieces as well. Yeah. Do you think that because of how quickly um, some of these projects, and I guess some of your low line, how quickly they, the, the community start to see the changes, it gets buy-in quicker than... A larger scale regeneration project for instance yeah absolutely absolutely because they can a- actually kind of directly influence mm-hmm. what what is happening um and yeah no and and certainly the kind of speed of of the projects means that they can they can actually kind of see things see things happening yeah but i think what's really important is actually to involve people in the whole process so mm-hmm. not just at the beginning the kind of design stage to actually involve them you know with uh, budgeting as well to actually like prioritize certain elements uh, versus others um, and then you know in the realization of the project as well so uh, I suppose when people feel yeah when people feel like they're kind of invested in Mm. in the project then there's like a sense of ownership and also I suppose that ensures the kind of future of, of the project because if it remains unloved then it will it will slowly kind of go into disrepair so it's really important that people feel like they need to kind of care for it yes and I guess that links in with what you were saying Rumi about like there isn't a custodian but like everyone has kind of bought into it and so it becomes its own ecosystem and I guess it's because it's smaller things that each individual can manage there is a sense of ownership there I guess you've answered the question but the next one was what is the opportunity for spaces between buildings to enhance the place and I guess through the landscaping, that's a really good one. But Adeirole, maybe you can talk about what you've been doing at Be First. So, in terms of spaces, there's not a lot of high streets in Barking and Dagenham per se, but just generally in terms of just using spaces to activate community engagement, we've done, there's, there's Phoenix Park, which I believe won an award. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice um, scheme. And the, the, I do believe, I, I really like what you mentioned around getting the community involved. Um, the concern always is you generally get like a large contractor or a framework of contractors that contribute financially with, with money as well as time and resources into those projects. But it's always a concern what happens once those contractors have completed their regeneration project, who's going to take responsibility for maintaining those spaces. Um, but. I think Be First generally are very keen. I think we've got probably four or five Meanwhile Youth Spaces and it's very popular within the community. And um, the way that they've done it is similar to what you've explained. They work with local schools, faith groups and everyone else in that community to establish exactly what they want and then try to deliver it within the constraints of a budget. But what will happen is, as mentioned, social value feeds into this whole ethos when you're looking at large corporate entities that contract with the with local authorities or public entities so what that will happen is you would say to the your social value contribution is sort out this park area (laughs) 
or these meanwhile use spaces. So that is the way that Be First and other companies or ent public entities are able to use corporate resources to try and establish their community aims mm -hmm. with those types of spaces. Okay, that's really helpful. Do you, do you guys have anything to add or ask from Ali Wali on that? <laughs> I, think, I think it's. I, I just agree. You know. Yeah. You know what both Katrina and Adwali said is that as uh, as it's important to engage authentically with with the people, with the users, with with the communities that that have that know the spaces and places that that are being kind of regenerated, that it's as important to to maintain that con continuity because that engagement creates the legacy, which is what you were saying, mm -hmm. and the legacy is. Is the love, it's the care, it's the stewardship, it's the it's the maintenance, it's the um, sense of pride and ownership that we want. That is, I guess, we measure as successful when we're talking about good regeneration. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, There's some feedback actually that during the the low line process, that it was on the um, I think we were both on probably on the call, but like a, a Zoom call with the with the GLA about how or what what regeneration looks like. And or, or even what placemaking looks like, and whether that's um, if you were to say in in the abstract, what does a regenerated place look like? Mm. Then um, you, you might get these sort of visions of coffee shops and I don't know microbreweries and stuff popping up. Um, whereas along certainly along the low line and the, the 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 footprint of what it might be, there are always existing businesses that have been there for decades, and um, the idea of sort of place making being a maybe a misnomer like there's an opportunity to work with the communities that exist and the businesses that exist there and and facilitate their growth and their whatever their ambitions might be um and in, in particular with the, the arches like just hundreds of empty arches that are opportunities for for more so rather than kind of wiping out um whatever happens to be there and and putting in a kind of a vision of Regeneration, mm. like um, that, that engagement with with what's already there, and not like you know, and in, in addition to asking what what else some community might like, just sort of facilitating the, the the those occupants. And certainly, I think from you know Arch Coast perspective, as the as a sort of you know, they're, as a landlord, I think they're probably the biggest SME landlord in the country mm. with all the arches they've got. Mm. Um, there seems to be a real um, understanding and desire to maintain those long-term tenants not like boot them out and um like kind of do a standard yeah. waterproofing job and yeah. then yeah big glazed front and start again although that does seem to happen a lot of arches and you see you see a kind of standard white box fit out trying to compete with an, a standard commercial let over the road um but yeah these these sort of like really old businesses it might be mot garages like you're saying with me like they, those businesses existed and they've been there for ages and you can see the sort of layering of use over time on the frontages and then the way and you go in there and all that is like this kind of backdrop to those communities and there has been for decades and like maintaining that and like building on that is is, is where the like the real opportunity seems to be and um less i guess that is less about place making and more about like place um keeping or yeah there is this like, like point that. about like what 
place is if place making is the right language to and terminology for what we're actually doing and to your point about kind of like white boxing and just kind of like sweeping out what's there i've had some so many really interesting conversations uh one more particular with a, with a university student who was talking about how london has started to feel the same and very cookie cutter and how place making or regeneration uh, was his terminology that is starting to look the same everywhere. And I've read a few articles where there's this new term called place washing, where developers are taking what they've done in, say, in Hackney, and taking that same same ethos, same principles, same coffee shop and breweries, and placing it in a completely different new community without considering the nuances and the subcultures within that area. Hello, my name's Rumi Bose. I work in the GLA, in the regeneration team. I've just been on Property Development Book Club talking about placemaking, small places, large places and how we can do it better. Hi, I'm Hannah Follaby. I am the Managing Director and Founder of Mood in Space. Mood in Space is a development consultancy that focuses on social value and community focused developments within the built environment in urban contexts. Uh, we've been going for not too long, just under a year, and we've worked on some amazing projects in and around London. If you're interested in finding out more about what we do, please do get in touch. Moodland Space are sponsoring season two of the Property Development Book Club podcast. If you want to hear more about what we do, please like, share and subscribe. Hi, I'm Tom Lewis. I'm a co-founder at TDO Architecture. I've just been on Property Development Book Club podcast talking about low-line artist projects. Hello, I'm Katrina Stewart and I'm an architect and a partner in Office SM Architects. Uh, today I've been um, part of a podcast uh, for the Property Development Book Club uh, talking about uh, how small spaces contribute to placemaking. I'm Adam Wally, Director at A Lake, and you are watching Season 2 of the Property Development Book Club podcast sponsored by Mood and Space. And I guess my question to you um, is where, you know, those small interventions, like the low line, like Shape uh, Newham and, and the other products in, in Harrogate, where they have a place in maintaining culture within London as opposed to eroding it and, or sorry, not er eradicating culture. Um, so yeah, that's my question to you guys. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think wor words or certain words can be triggering or problematic for different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that sometimes regeneration is um, a bad word for some some people because it's associated with gentrification or people being dispersed or priced out of their local communities. Um, I think regeneration is, if you go back to nature and farming and plants, mm. um, a regenerative plant or um, or if you watch like superhero movies, like if you're able to regenerate yourself, it's about restoring and renewing. Mm. Um, and if you apply that to a place, um, our role as as placemakers mm. or regenerators <laughs> or whatever our you know our role is as exactly as Tom you said it's about kind of firstly understanding what is the inherent DNA of this place how is this place in Hackney really unique and authentic and special and who who are the people that make it special and what are the uses here and and then it's about kind of restoring and healing that those things have been fractured or forgotten and revealing and celebrating what is unique about that place. And if we can do that well with the people to guide us um, and restore and reinvigorate a place 
that balances people and planet and not knock things down or place wash or um, put something in that's shiny and new that forgets mm. the layers of, of city fabric, um, then I think we're getting it right. But that's easy to say and, and hard to do. But I think, yeah, people and planet and, and renewing and celebrating is, mm. is really key, I think. Yeah. Definitely. And I guess, do you have any example of where it has done been done really well? Because we have plenty of examples <laughs> of where it has not been done so well. And I guess we can learn from them also. But where I think always, for me, always the best examples of, of projects uh, and programmes are when A, there's true collaboration mm. in, in the process and the delivery. When uh, when there's trust um, between the incredible group of people that is needed, the expertise that's needed to kind of make a place um, or restore a place. And firstly, that expertise lies with the local people who live there, who've grown up there, mm -hmm. who, who work there, who understand the place as it was and, and, uh, and what, as I said, what's kind of not working. Um, I'm an urban designer, so that you know, I, I have a certain skill set. I'm not an engineer. I'm not an architect. Um, and so, uh, you know, my job is very much about trusting other people to to sort of and, and bring people along on this journey. And I think collaboration is always what's what makes something a project really successful. Um, yeah. Yeah. And in the collaboration, I think I would also say collaboration with the community and the existing yeah. people that yeah, are already yeah, there definitely. is what makes it really, really positive and helpful. And then like on the on the kind of large versus smaller projects, then where do you think the biggest differences are in the in its approach generally, based on what you said already on the lower line and, and ship new and etc.? I think it's really um as as we were maybe kind of alluding to earlier, is it's that kind of human scale mm -hmm. um, that really allows, I suppose, opportunities um, to kind of happen that maybe don't happen on kind of larger scale projects. That actually, that kind of direct uh, contact um, with the community um, allows for yeah those kind of opportunities that that maybe on a larger scale project and that intimacy as well mm -hmm. of, of those spaces um, that maybe people don't feel like they can engage with as much maybe on, on kind of larger projects. But also just going back to something that you were saying earlier about, um, you know, what what um, kind of, uh, what did you call it? Place washing, mm -hmm. place washing. Um, I suppose, especially, you know, just really kind of thinking about um, how how you kind of, you know, every, every, place in you know London is, is very very different has very different communities and and also um, different ways of, of kind of uh, engaging mm. as well so you know it's I suppose we always I always think that kind of successful projects are ones that really where people have really really listened mm -hmm. and found ways of, of communicating with people that obviously or that sometimes don't um, kind of uh, necessarily kind of want to engage okay. or, or are not used to kind of engaging mm -hmm. in in these projects mm -hmm. and finding ways of actually being able to kind of talk to people who are maybe um often kind of 
you know, harder to reach, I suppose, mm. communities mm-hmm. um, and making sure that they're kind of involved. Yeah, yeah. You're going to I was just going to say, like, the uh, <clears throat> just to build, build a question about the difference between larger, smaller projects and how they kind of interface. The, I think in our experience, the, the key difference is often that the way that the team's set up and who the client is. Mm. So, I mean, there's that old adage about architects are only as good as their client. And I think that there are, um, you know, depends on the size of the client and the size of the, the sort of originating, where the brief comes from and where it comes from sort of, like, I guess, like spiritually as much as, um, as, as anything else. What do they actually kind of want to achieve and how, who are they engaging to do it and how they're setting the team up? So a, a much larger developer, you know, in our experience, will have, um, or maybe be a little bit more detached from what's happening on the ground and there's a kind of a bigger team and you're, you're dealing with bigger kind of numbers and uh, kind of a master plan perhaps that's this kind of split into plots and it's, it's all a bit more kind of There's distanced. so many more metrics isn't yeah. there yeah. to follow yeah. and tick boxes. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah. Whereas if you're working in a kind of, if you're working at a much more one-to-one scale, like you're actually kind of able to be on site mm. with a client and with yeah. the people that you're, you're kind of um, engaging with as a community, then Right, from, you've got such a huge advantage from the outset in how that engagement works, and, um, and ultimately what the project looks like at the end, and how it how it kind of relates to its surroundings, yeah. rather than a kind of we talked earlier about like this is like you know the whole of Canary Wharf like being kind of flattened and rebuilt, and there's a that in itself is a kind of big idea, but it doesn't really have anything to do with what was here before, yeah. and you've got no yeah. sense of what was here mm. before. No. Whereas if it was done as a kind of 10,000 small projects, you'd, you'd have mm. like a kind of, it would be woven into the, well, more of an opportunity to be woven yeah. into the history of the, yeah. of the area. And actually one, one of the things I love most about London, uh, especially within the city, is that buildings sit next to buildings that don't necessarily fit. Yeah. And we've kind of lost that in the modern, modern regeneration and development of buildings. Like, there is this idea that you know there there has to be architectural variety across mm. large scale regeneration projects, but what you actually have is just slight tweaks as yeah, opposed yeah, yeah. to yeah. oh this is completely out of place, but this is amazing. You know what yeah. I mean? And or you're turning a corner and you didn't expect to see mm. a, a Spanish esque architectural elevation like staring out at you. And I, I do like what you said about the ten thousand projects being the solution to diversity in our architecture, but actually diversity of scale and diversity of voices because people can speak to certain things as opposed to the other. Yeah. Um, how do you see that as a developer ever working? <laughs> <laughs> so, repeat the question, please. <laughs> as a developer, how do you see it working, having like 10,000 projects happening at the same time that, that create the largest scale region? Well, I think that the, one thing is, I do think it's a good idea that you have small interventions that ultimately engage the imaginations of local communities. Because when you look at large scale developments, it is very insensitive to the existing communities. Yeah? And I feel that if you can find meanwhile uses, if you can try and work with communities in a small scale, even on, and there are good developers that do on a large scale as well, but not many of them. <laughs> but I think that, um, those mini projects, I think they make a massive difference um, because you can imagine me saying, imagine I said, hi guys, um, I'm going to be delivering this 200 million pound development, but the average person on that street is saying, all right, it's 200 million. <laughs> I pay my rent one grand a month. How do I relate to this 200 million or whatever it may be? And there is no relation. 
because they will never live in those flats. That's the first point. Number two, there isn't much for them to like, key into with that whole new development. So I think it's just a question of if developers, us developers, large, small, whichever size you are, you have to try and give something back to the community through these small interventions, mm -hmm. which they can hopefully own part of your development. Mm -hmm. And then you can go off and deliver your amazing projects. <laughs> it's, it's a great big challenge, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and maybe we should ask someone from a large developer. But I think, obviously, we live in London and there's a need for more jobs, uh, more homes, mm -hmm. and you need those big master plans yeah. to deliver mm -hmm. to deliver those kind of new town centres. Mm -hmm. um, and you, as as you said, you just you can't achieve in the same way um, that intimacy, that crafted detail, that um, you know that that kind of relationship that you you can do with a with a single kind of architectural scale building. Mm that you might be kind of working on with a team of six to 10 people. Um, I think there's, yeah, there's, there's a, there's a, they're just two different beasts. And I think we've got these huge opportunity areas, as yeah. they're called um, in, in the London plan. Mm -hmm. So you've got Elephant Castle over here and you've got Old Kent Road yeah. and LDC and OPDC. And then you've got the fringe areas, mm -hmm. which are the in-between pieces mm -hmm. which mustn't be left out but they have to be dealt with differently mm -hmm. because they're not they're not kind of within the remit of a large developer they're not delivering kind of 10,000 units or yeah. whatever it is so that it's it's just as you say it's a different strategy it's a different mindset um not to say that we shouldn't hold those larger master plans and and, and big developers to account um to to regenerate those places sensitively with communities at the front and center. But I think it, they're just two different things. Yeah. Um, no, so I, I appreciate that. And I do think, yeah, they are definitely two. And I, I liked what you said about the fringes, almost like leaving areas that are very sensitive to communities and or cultures and being dealt with differently. Because I think at the moment we're seeing like Elephant Castle is such an amazing example and it's, it, it, did, it did need intervention and it, 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 it was necessary. But I think as a result, we've lost, you know, a Colombian community, Nigerian communities, you know, like a variety of communities that were like central to what Elephant Castle was, that now that it's going to be redeveloped and regenerated, will be dispersed and lost. And so that's a part of London that is known for something, you know, like it has a tourist, it has a cultural attraction, it has a tourist attraction. It has, at least for me, um, a nostalgic element to having gone to Elephant and Cost with my, my <laughs> mum and like driving past it to go and get our foods. Um, that has now been, um, not, I wouldn't say eroded because I understand the complete need and the, the need for scale and the need for new homes and new offices and new buildings. We need that. But I wonder then, is is it possible to do sympathetic regeneration at that scale um you know where we still hold on to some of the cultural elements that are, is so fundamentally london you know oh, I, i've got i've okay. got a response to that stratford as it stands at the moment there's one side of stratford which is our side <laughs> <laughs> when i say our side i grew up in forest yeah, gate so yeah, there's that true, side yeah. and then e20 is the side that we grew 
to obviously see developed. Yeah. Now, Stratford, Westfield, mm -hmm. and Westfield and West London, if you were to close your eyes and open it, you, you wouldn't know where you were. If yeah. I put you, close, blindfolded you, spin you around, wait for two hours, and put you, you could easily say you were either in West London or Stratford, because they're both the same as far from, uh, from how it feels. So I do feel that this whole point around expression, is, and it goes back to your point, European architecture is very similar mm -hmm. in, in the way that it's expressed. And I think Dubai has very similar tones to how we do design or large scale design here as well. Of recent. Of recent. Yeah. And I found that, because um, I went to Spain a few years and I said I could easily be in London because classical European architecture is very similar most places you go in Europe. There are some obviously Mediterranean that have a totally different form of expression but generally I do find that there's similarities. So I do think it's very difficult at times to be able to uh, take a contextual architecture within a local area mm -hmm. and try to re-establish it because it's very difficult to do. Because then the question is, is there localised architecture in specific areas in London that anyone can say that architecture is very unique to Hackney? That isn't the case, unfortunately. I think it's more about the people and and the uses within the architecture. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think the architecture needs to enable and, and celebrate those uses and those people. Um, and where, you know, we've moved, not even moving, we've moved into an era where it's almost taboo now to kind of knock things down and, and build them again. And so this idea of working what, with what's there, which in includes the buildings and the people and the mm -hmm. users that are in there. And I think that's ultimately what's going to make a place successful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and just to, to add to that, yeah, I, I completely agree. It's about the buildings. Like, uh, Tom, you want to jump in, don't no, you? No, no, no. I was listening. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> going back to the Canary Wharf example, yeah. you know, Canary Wharf is like amazing. But on a Saturday, it hasn't got the same vibe. And the, the reason why it changes between a Saturday or, or weekend and the weekdays because there's thousands of people in Canary Wharf yes. during the weekday, uh, mm. we, uh, weekdays. And so it feels a little bit more buzzing, like yeah. there's a lot more energy. The white, the, the glass boxes don't feel as uh, oppressive. Mm -hmm. But if you're walking down on a weekend where literally it's just ghost Empty. town, yeah. you feel like you're in a, like in a, a, a dystopian movie, yeah. movie. Yeah. do you know what I mean? I think, like, I'd say like Canary Wharf is, is, is um, a, a this sort of idea of how do you how do you make successful places with big buildings? Like that's a really successful execution of a brief. It's the brief that's probably the problem. Mm. It, it, the brief would have been like create like millions of square feet of commercial yeah. space that we can lease at like massively high value, mm. um, which isn't great for like the weekends because no. no one's there. But um, it's I th it just to go back to something I, th I think that if it, it comes down to like the very first moments of a project and what mm -hmm. a client wants to achieve out of it and that, yeah. that can that can happen at, at scale as well like you can have a client like my, my favorite building is, is the Barbican which is like you know a, yeah. not a great piece of urbanism mm -hmm. in many senses but also just like unbelievably kind of out there and bold in the way that it it kind of went about kind of being um you know the design of it mm -hmm. um and that that feels like a kind of a really ambitious response to um, to a brief, and you can yeah. kind of see it like in the way that it's been built. Um, so I, I feel like you, it, it it really depends on like the DNA of the project, like who's what what's whoever's commissioning and paying for this. What are they actually after? And 
if it's if the brief is written well enough, then it's likely that what they'll get at the end is if they've got good enough architect, what they wanted to get. I think, I think they're such good examples, such good kind of um, examples of their time. Um, and in, in, in Canary Wharf's defense, <laughs> um, I used to work in Canary Wharf yeah. like a long time ago yeah. when, um, it, yeah, it, even during the day, mm. even during the day, like there, there were not, there wasn't so much of an offer for lunch as there is now. So that it was quite limited in terms of the shops. And I've, so I've, I've kind of seen, because I'm quite old, I've kind of <laughs> seen <laughs> the change um, that, that the Canary Wharf Development Corporation have mm. tried to make mm. over sort of the decades. And um, now, I, I agree, the weekends are not going to be the same as the no. week. But in the summer, if you go to Canary yeah, Wharf, they've done so much more. The green spaces, mm, yeah. the kind of cultural offer, there are kids running around, there are people having, yeah. you know, the shops, the, yeah. you know, obviously retail has really been ramped up Definitely. as a destination. Yeah. So they've, they've done yeah. a lot more to kind of enhance it as a place. And equally the Barbican, again, yeah. that's kind of like a 60s, you know, very crude sort of 60s version of you know, Canary yeah. Wharf, right? Yeah. Like big, <laughs> bold, not very navigable, Mm. Yeah, buildings and, and walkways <laughs> and things. And um, if it wasn't for the cultural centre, mm -hmm. why would you, you yeah. know, yeah. if but you didn't both, live both there? Both those places are kind of um, are really particular as well. Aren't they? Like, yeah. you know, they're not, there's, there's really forgettable parts of the city, like things going up, but you just, you just never pay attention to. But both of those, they're really iconic parts of London. Yeah. And like in Canary Wharf, whether you like it or not, is is actually a, a, a major landmark, and it's really kind of um, odd. It's quite like, in a really like yeah. engaging yeah. way. It's like you yeah. go there, and you're like you're kind of captivated by its oddness. But then, in that, it has its own culture. Then, yeah. do you know what I mean? It, it has its own culture it, of office as the financial district. But the, yeah, mm -hmm. it's kind of got its own sense of place. It's got uh, water. It's got the DLR. Yeah. You know, you, you've got this kind of quite modern sort of. Uh, 80s, 90s architecture. Yeah. So yeah, it has its own Very American. Sense of place. <laughs> what, what I would say though, is that the reason, and to, to your journey about Canary Wolf over time becoming a destination and actually having its, its culture, is because of those smaller interventions, because they created those seating areas, because now the, the, the waters, they have like these like hot tubs in the water or yeah. paddling pool in the water, yeah. It's, it's you can swim in the Thames now. <laughs> it's the uses. It's the uses. Yeah. And they have that the food hall and the, the winter gardens. The winter and garden. they've really created smaller things to glue together. Mm. And I think that is, I guess, what we're talking about, especially with the low line and shape new room, is those interventions along the way that create like the fringes of an area mm -hmm. that glue a new a, a new region together that needs to be a little bit more considered to ensure that the community and that culture mm. remains or is well defined if, if it's not there in the first place we have to wrap up now guys um, we've had a really interesting conversation so thank you all so much for your contributions it's been really good uh, i feel like we could have been talking for another 10 minutes so apologies <laughs> guys um but thank you all for listening this has been the uh this has been regeneration a case study on placemaking uh we hope you enjoyed please like share and subscribe thank you 
This is the Property Development Book Club podcast. Please be advised that the views expressed are of the individuals and do not represent their employers and should not be taken as advice. Please do your own research and seek advice from an appointed professional.